Hello, listeners. My name is Rich Lopez. And my name is Ali Maddock. And welcome to the first episode of Dartmouth's VoxCast, a podcast of big ideas percolating in the Dartmouth community and beyond. We get our name from Dartmouth's motto, the Latin phrase, Vox Clamantis in Deserto, translated, a voice crying out in the wilderness. Although 246 years have passed since Eleazar Wheelock christened the college with this motto, we hope to embody and carry forth this spirit into the 21st century, casting ideas and voices from the beautiful wilderness of Hanover, New Hampshire, across airwaves, and into the wider world. This episode's topic is big data. There's no getting around it. Big data is intertwined with our lives in countless ways. Jawbones, Fitbits, and other wearable devices track our sleep and physical activity. Facebook news feeds and Spotify playlists are carefully curated to match our moods and preferences. We have become, wittingly or unwittingly, the sources and recipients of big data, while accompanying algorithms quietly crunch all this data behind the scenes. In this inaugural episode of VoxCast, we explore the promise and peril of big data from many angles. There was no way we could have done this on our own, So we picked the brains of experts across disciplines who each interact with big data and its implications in some meaningful way, or two, or ten. The fields of study represented by these folks really run the gamut, from computer science to psychiatry to bioethics and to experimental music. We first interviewed Dr. Tiffany Sverkel. Dr. Sverkel received her Ph.D. in philosophy from UCLA, where she studied bioethics. She first spoke to us about the excitement surrounding big data and how it can impact our decision-making. Well, I think the promise is remarkable. Uh, so the foundation of all science is that the more data, the better your results. And that's true of every discipline, everything that we look at. So for the first time, we have the ability technologically to both collect huge amounts of data, but also to work with it. And people don't always realize how difficult that second part is, right? It's not just about the collection, it's about the usability. So with large data sets, now I'm gonna be able to draw conclusions, but also make connections in ways that we were never able to before. It helps us figure out what choices we wanna make, both on the micro level, things like where do I wanna live? What do I wanna go to school for? What kind of food do I wanna eat? But on the macro level too, and things like how should healthcare resources be distributed? What should we do about environmental protections? All of these much larger questions. Along with the exciting promises of big data, she also spoke to us about potential concerns and dangers, particularly when it comes to ethical issues. Here's the challenge. The challenge is we don't fully know what we're going to find uh, when we work with all of this data. So the position that we're in is trying to anticipate what are the challenges before we get into trouble. Now, a lot of this is once upon a time uh, in human society, issues of privacy were really just who in your village is going to see you walk out your door doing your thing? Enter the internet, enter social media. Now we have more widespread uh, social contact in society. But really that's nothing compared to what can be collected. And so we have challenges about privacy, about consent, about information, just in an order of magnitude greater. We've never thought about anything quite this large. Part of the thing that I worry about is private personal information and things that are intimate to us being used without our consent. So the promise and peril is that we can process data way faster in huge amounts, much better than our brains can alone. That has benefits and costs. And so thinking about that in relation to our cognitive abilities is really important. Uh, And also building in some breathing room and not letting it 
uh, alter our decision-making process in a way that might not be the ways we fully endorse. The next person we chatted with, Dr. Lisa Marsh, wears many hats, but she's primarily professor of psychiatry at the Geisel School of Medicine and director at the Dartmouth Center for Technology and Behavioral Health. I caught up with her after she recently gave a presidential faculty lecture. She also expressed to us concerns about consent and privacy and potential ways of dealing with these issues. You can have models that are entirely, you know, data entirely sort of con um, owned by patients, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But in a healthcare system, if a healthcare system is going to sort of almost prescribe a technology tool to a patient and want to capture some data from that, they may mm -hmm. ask that the patient share with them that data for their clinical mm -hmm. use. I, there's been a lot of, not a lot, but some discussion recently about thinking in this space about creating almost like industry standards around this. So, so the analogy's been made of like, okay, if you become a lawyer, for example, mm -hmm. you have a very certain specific code of ethics of right. how you protect data of your clients. If you become a physician, right. you have a very specific code of ethics mm -hmm. about your responsibility to your patients and the way in which you protect their privacy and there's some momentum in this space to try to similarly mm. create some sort of code of ethics almost mm. that people have to adhere to. Considering these health benefits is important as this type of data has incredible promise for improving health. You know I actually in their early work with people with chronic addictions was really surprised at the mm. kind of effects we could have with mm -hmm. drug addicted populations because you know, people who are chronic injection drug users let's mm. say it's these are really difficult to change behaviors yeah. and when we saw you know study after study mm. the benefit of adding these resources mm -hmm. and that people actually applied the, what they were doing in the thing to their daily mm -hmm. lives mm -hmm. that was pretty remarkable mm. to me overall she is hopeful given the results she's seen with this approach creating new personal and social resources mm. to people to help them meet their behavior change mm. goals. Mm -hmm. And some of that is about new skills that they can mm -hmm. learn mm -hmm. and apply to their daily lives. Mm -hmm. Some of it, I think, is about the unprecedented models of access to therapeutic support, that it's right there with them. Right, right, they don't have to right. wait for their next week's visit with their clinician, mm -hmm. but rather when they have a need, there's something immediately accessible mm -hmm. to them. So I think the we see that the pace and the nature by mm. which we can impact behavior change mm. seems to differ from technology-based interventions versus others because of the unprecedented way that you can have access to these things. Next, we dropped by the computer science department and sat down with Andrew Campbell. Well, my name is Andrew Campbell. I'm a professor of computer science at Dartmouth College. In line with Dr. Marsh, who we just heard from, Professor Campbell also recognizes the potential health benefits of mobile technology, not only for clinical populations, but also for students here on Dartmouth campus. You know, the stress and strains of, of the students I'm teaching and, and seeing them, you know, the millennials so engaged with mobile technology and asking myself the question is, you know, subjectively I can see you know, the, as the, the term progresses and the workload increases, you know, stress sets in and fatigue. But I was wondering, well, what could we really find out if we understood the data from their devices? What made you interested in going a relatively applied route in computer science to really take what's known about mobile technology and apply that to understand health and well-being? Like, what, what kind of motivated you in that direction? I think the I got interested in how devices that we carried every day could tell us sort of hidden states about the people that carry them. So the you know ten years ago or maybe less about eight years ago, 
we started doing some work on the phone, understanding physical behavior. Am I walking? Am mm. I standing? Am I running? Am I bicycle? The phone mm. knows that now. It's interesting. Today, if you buy a new iPhone or Android phone, that algorithm is embedded in the operating system. Big data gets personal sometimes. Whether we care about a single fish or the entire ocean makes a big difference. We'll talk about big data. You know, which is typically when you get you know, aggregates of lo you know of individual pieces of data, right? So I tend to think when I think think of an individual, I tend to think of small data, mm. you know, their data, their personal data, mm. and that's they, that's all they really care about if they care about it at all, right? Um, they might think about well, how does my data compare, or mm. how do I compare? You know, a Dartmouth student might say, you know, they might be interested. Well, what's my stress level, my daily stress levels like compared to my friends or other students or, you know, the other first years or mm. they might have that sort of, you know, comparison in mind. But they're typically interested in their data. And so I'm really focused on um, doing the types of studies that, that, that collect in individual students' data, but quite deep and for quite a long period of time. Still, the analysis of this type of data has its challenges. You know, it's a multi-stage process to get to saying like what we did um, when we first did the student life study, which is where we said, oh, we can find correlations between depression and some of the students' data. You know, so it took a long time to get to that. And I think when people think about big data, um, they have this m mental model that once the data is collected, the evidence is right there, it's just a matter of like, you know, like turning the faucet on and the answers pop out. But it's doing data analytics is, is terrifically hard. We next spoke with Michael Casey, who is a professor of music and computer science, along with Carlos Casas, a visiting professor and experimental filmmaker. Each of them bring an artist's perspective to the conversation about big data. For example, they recently co-taught a new class called Datascapes, offered at Dartmouth. Datascapes is a new class at Dartmouth. It's an experimental class offered by the music department and the computer science department. It is a course that brings together creative people, artists and musicians, and scientists, computer scientists, people who work in the social sciences, mm -hmm. and also in the natural sciences. And the idea is to explore the data that's behind science, but to explore it in new ways mm. through the eyes of artists mm. and musicians. They also spoke about other opportunities for artists who might be interested in big data, including a few competitions advertised by the Newcomb Institute. The Newcomb Institute for Computational Science at Dartmouth has announced three competitions mm. that are Turing tests in the creative arts, mm -hmm. and they're being held at Dartmouth, and there's been a basically an international announcement of these and we're receiving en entries mm -hmm. and they are for um, one's, one's called Poetics mm -hmm. which is for sonnets 14 line okay. poems okay. Uh, so there's the constraint mm -hmm. on creativity mm -hmm. so within that constraint right. can you exhibit right. creativity right. that could be mistaken for human mm -hmm. creativity mm -hmm. in a blind test right. and so we have judges who will be reading these mm -hmm. and trying to determine is that algorithm or human mm -hmm. Uh, the second one is Digilit, which is for short stories up to 4,000 words. Maybe that one's a little harder. <laughs> the constraints are not so narrow there, so a lot more open-ended. And then the final one is called Algorithms, and it's for dance music. Okay. Later in the interview, we were joined by Carlos Casas. 
Casas brought up the interesting point that big data is inherently neutral, and pros and cons only emerge when we consider the human element. But I think that, I mean, thinking that data has a, a, a you know, like prevalent negative connotation is, I, I believe, is not correct because data contains in a certain way truth. Whatever you use that data for, that's when it becomes, you know, the same thing as anything in science. Mm. You know, any development is always being used for, for good or for bad. And I think that in a certain way, what what we deal for the, with the course, and I think that probably it's the same uh, approach we have for data, is mm. just another dimension of the way that we understand reality. Mm. And data provides that quality in order to decipher ways that we see our environment and how we can use these new ways, this sort of new information that we provide in order to recreate. In a certain ways, that's what artists have always been doing. Mm. In, a, in a certain way, people and artists have been dealing with data, with impressions, mm. with living, with connecting with different antennas to the world mm. and actually deciphering all that data and reproducing that in artistical projects. Casas later went on to say that we should think of big data as an instrument and it's up to us to determine how this instrument is used. Now we are using an instrument, but of course the way that this instrument is going to be used, that's up for the further generations to make it happen. And this reminded us of something Dr. Tiffany Sferkel, the first person we heard from, had said. I have students, of course, uh, and the students are from all over, right? I teach some GE classes, so from every discipline. And in some ways, they represent the future for this technology because here are a whole bunch of primarily 18 to 22 year olds and they're wearing Apple watches, they're carrying their cell phones and you know, this is, these are the people who are gonna have to make these hard decisions. These decisions Dr. Sferkel is referring to are hard and by no means trivial. And that got us wondering, how aware and informed are Dartmouth students about the implications of big data in their lives? For a word on the street kind of segment, I chatted with some students in Bakerberry to get their pulse on these issues firsthand. Here are some reflections by Donde Dean, 17, who highlighted her acceptance of the positive role of big data in her personal life, namely Spotify, as well as some misgivings she had. It's something I've actually been thinking about quite a bit lately. So I really enjoy like having content tailored to me, like Spotify Weekly, like I don't even have to pick my music. It's all interesting and fun. Um, but really my problem with it is like the, the ethics behind it, right? The fact that most people aren't aware that, you know, they're taking or recording this information about us and then we don't really have control over what information we release. Um, and then the fact that like there are organizations that like profit off of like the buying and the selling of this info. So I mean, personally, like I don't know what aspect of it yeah. I can control. I'm not really sure like what agency I have in this whole process. Indeed, our agency in this process is not well characterized yet, but that doesn't mean we can't use our agency and creativity as human beings to make data work for us, to parse out its benefits and safeguard ourselves against its perils. So, what will people do with big data? Professor Michael Casey posed some provocative questions for us to ponder. Who will be the Banksy of big data, right? Who, who, will, who will graffiti data so that algorithms are fooled by it? Who will be the artists that manipulate the search engines, that grab onto what the algorithms are listening for and use that to elevate themselves? And some of those will be subversive uses. They will be people who 
are doing it for the purposes of experimental art to make the very point that they've gotten hold of the algorithm and they're hijacking it. And I look forward to that. I think it'll be wonderful. <laughs> After journeying through the impressive and sometimes disturbing landscape of big data, we've concluded at least one thing on which we can hang our hats, and maybe you'll agree. Big data is likely here to stay. So hopefully we can shift from passive to active engagement, increasing our awareness of its influence on our lives. In that same spirit of engagement, we'd like to encourage you to stay engaged as we get this podcast off the ground. Visit our website at dartmouthvoxcast.org. We welcome your comments, reactions, topic suggestions for future episodes, and everything in between. Thank you, listener, for tuning into VoxCast. Until next time, 